all comments and observations in this podcast are made in a personal capacity and we're expressing personal views by way of legal commentary. While every effort is made to ensure that the contents of each episode are accurate, none of the contents of any episode of Professionally Embarrassing are intended to be a substitute for legal advice. No liability is accepted for any error or omission within any episode. to Professionally Embarrassing, your fortnightly family law podcast hosted by me, Malika, and me, Maddie. Hello everyone, welcome back to season three of Professionally Embarrassing. We are so sorry that there's been a delay, but it is due to the fact that very excitingly, Malvika has moved to Delhi and is undertaking her Pegasus scholarship with, I want to say, Inner Temple. So Malvika, how's it going? How's Delhi? Exhausting. It's such a vibrant but chaotic city. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know, I was born in Delhi and I moved to the UK when I was five. But I haven't been back to Delhi very often since I came to the UK. And so it's been an experience. It's been a real culture shock for me, but also it's been so much fun. I've been learning loads. I'm sure I'll talk about it in more detail on another podcast episode at some point when I'm not so exhausted because it's 10 o'clock at night here and Malika needs to get some sleep at some point. But there are so many different approaches taken to family law here in India, which is part of the reason why I wanted to come here and learn about a completely different legal system. The priorities for the court system are totally different because obviously the volume of people is huge. And when we thought that we had a problem with backlog of cases in our system, well, it's nothing compared to what's going on here. So I'm sure we'll talk about it in in more detail on a different episode, but I'm having a fab time just lacking in sleep a little bit. But if you hear some honking in the background, that's just the constant traffic. I can't get rid of that, I'm afraid. Bringing you genuine Delhi sounds on Professionally Embarrassing this week. So pivoting I'm afraid back to our normal content, although I hope we can do a full episode about Malvika's experiences as soon as she's finished up in Delhi. We are today looking at two different cases, both of which go, I think, to the heart of the sort of family justice system in the state it's in at the moment in slightly different ways. So the case that I've got this week is a case called CM and IP, which is an appeal before Mrs. Justice Morgan from a court at Carlisle, a sort of West Cumbria area in relation to what we call participatory measures or what used to be called special measures and fact findings. Now, I don't know if we've gone a lot into fact findings since we covered re-HN, but we are looking at the nature of fact findings, domestic abuse within relationships, the impact of domestic abuse on children, which is for anyone who's got any idea how the family justice system in the UK works, is a, a cornerstone of what we do, really, and, and comes up a lot more frequently than you would normally see it in everyday society. So this is an appeal brought by the mother on two specific grounds, which I would imagine are very common grounds for people who are experiencing these kind of problems in their cases. So the first ground of appeal in relation to the court at first instance was that the judge did not consider appropriately the implications of practice direction 3AA, which concerns vulnerable witnesses in relation to participation measures, did not conduct a ground rules hearing um, and essentially did not abide by its obligation to address the issue of part three of the FPR, practice direction 3AA and participatory directions. So for all of those of you who don't know what that means, essentially practice direction 3AA refers to what we call vulnerable witnesses. Now, a witness may be vulnerable for a number of reasons, medical, by virtue of age, by virtue of physical disability, by virtue of anxiety, by virtue of distress, by virtue of intimidation. It's often assumed that people who are alleged victims of domestic abuse would be considered vulnerable witnesses without needing to determine whether or not they are in fact victims of domestic abuse. It's often the case that if someone suffers from an anxiety condition or has a particular response around another person, that the court may be more distressing to them than it would be to someone else. And therefore, the court needs to consider participatory directions. So in this case, the court, and this is again, an appeal in front of Mrs. Justice Morgan in the High Court from the decision of a circuit judge, The court sets out that the court is the one who has the obligation to identify at the earliest possible stage if any party or witness is a vulnerable person. 
So the court sets out, this is paragraph 15 of the judgment. In practice direction 3AA, paragraph 5.2, I find the requirement for a ground rules hearing prior to any hearing where a vulnerable party, a vulnerable witness or a protected party is to give evidence and at such hearing to make participation directions must be complied with. That which falls to be considered during the ground rules component include the conduct of advocates and parties, any support for the person giving evidence, the form the evidence should take, the way the evidence should be taken and directing the manner of any cross-examination and considering participation directions, including prescribing how any cross-examination should take place. Now, for those of you who can recall, and you may not be able to, because I now realise having said this, that I've been at the bar a lot longer than I thought, but there was a case, I think back in 2017, called PS and BP, which was a decision of the High Court in relation to what we do about cross-examination in the family court where the alleged abuser is not represented by a legal representative. So for any of you who know, in the criminal system for a long time, there has been a bar on litigants in person cross-examining alleged victims of their alleged offences due to the fact that it may well distress the victim and cause their evidence to be diminished as a result of distressing and intimate and concerning and personal questions. That's been a, a rule in the criminal division for a long time. We in the family division have been slow to take up the mantle in this regard. And it's one of the things that was addressed very substantively by the Domestic Abuse Act 2021, which came into force May of this year. Now, PS and BP was a decision that essentially attempted to set out guidance, but it was specifically not called guidance from Mr. Justice Hayden about how the court should approach uh, the issue of litigants in person cross-examining alleged victims of their alleged offences. What Mr. Justice Hayden said in that case is observations were offered to provide a forensic life belt until a rescue raft by way of parliamentary action arrives. Now, the rescue raft in the form of the Domestic Abuse Act has now arrived some four short years later and contains the rules for what should happen if someone who is accused of domestic abuse is representing themselves and wants to cross-examine and properly challenge the evidence against them, which, of course, they're entitled to do. Now, that goes hand in hand, those rules and those expectations go hand in hand with the rules and expectations of Practice Direction 3AA, which sets out what should happen when a witness, party or person is considered vulnerable within proceedings. Mrs Justice Morden makes it very clear that she, when looking at the applicable statutory provisions, the language and sense of all of those things taken together, the Practice Direction, Practice Direction 12J, which concerns fact findings, Practice Direction 3AA, and the Domestic Abuse Act 2021, place the duty on the court, regardless of the position adopted for or on behalf of any party, including the party who later asserts that they are vulnerable. So essentially, this is one in a, a string of decisions, actually, where it doesn't matter what you said at first instance, whether your barrister was hopeless and forgot to raise it, whether you were acting in person, whether something went wrong, whatever. It is an absolute duty on the court at all times regardless of who's in front of them, to consider whether any witness, party or person may be vulnerable and to make proper participatory directions for them to participate in the case. The court finds that that didn't happen in this case. So what the mother had asked for was what I would consider fairly standard domestic abuse, participatory measures, screens in the hearing, separate entrances and exits, separate waiting rooms, staggered entrances and exits, that sort of thing. Waiting area screens mostly. Now, those participatory measures were put to the court in advance of the hearing which is under appeal by a women's organization acting for the mother and the, so the court was aware of them at the time this came before the judge the, the judge of first instance however on the day for some reason or other and it's, it's not stated in, in, in the judgment why and I don't want to speculate but it wasn't raised on the day by counsel for the mother it may well be that there are lots of reasons why that didn't happen because it wasn't raised, there was no ground rules hearing, either separately and distinct from the hearing that's being appealed, or as a preliminary aspect of that hearing. Here is where I remind practitioners that you are allowed to ask for an hour at the beginning of the hearing to be used as a ground rules hearing in the event that one's not been listed. And the judge says, yet more regrettably, when I turn to the judgment, it is entirely silent as to any consideration of special measures at all. And indeed, there is no mention of Part 3A of the FPR, Practice Direction 3AA, or Practice Direction 12J. Now, the judge does say, paragraph 31, I do not disregard the fact that it is, of course, far easier for me at some distance and with more time available to me on this appeal than there was to the circuit judge on the day it was listed in a busy court on one of the last sitting days before Christmas, that I have a distinct advantage over him in that respect. It is also plain on the face of the judgment 
that the judge sat late to deliver an extemporary judgment, having had at the start of the day to deal with various preliminary applications. Now, by way of background, what has happened here is that the mother and the father have separated. The child is about 10. Dad made an application for contact with the child. That application was resisted by the mother on the basis of allegations of domestic abuse and coercive controlling behaviour. And she said, those allegations are significant. They impact on the welfare of the child because I don't think the child will be safe for various reasons without measures being taken to address the behaviour of the father. So she raised these allegations to the court. The court at the hearing that is now being appealed took the view that a fact finding was not necessary and did not engage in any special measures, participatory measures or a ground rules hearing prior to making that decision and prior to setting down decisions from the hearing that was then being appealed. So as I said at the beginning, the mother appeals on two bases. The first basis is lack of participatory measures. Now, the key thing from this hearing or this judgment for everyone who's interested in family law is that it is not an obligation on professionals, but an obligation on the court. So courts must at all times consider whether there is a vulnerable witness party or person in their courtroom that needs the protection of practice direction 3AA. It doesn't matter if it's never raised. It doesn't matter if a client comes to you weeks later and it wasn't raised the first instance. If the court has failed to consider it, then the court may be liable or open to an appeal on the basis of procedural unfairness. That is the court's, the high court's reading of practice direction 3AA. Now, what the judge says is, I'm sorry to say on the particular facts of this case, there are a number of matters which drive me to the conclusion that I must allow the appeal on ground one. Prominent amongst them are, there is no reference in the judgment to the Domestic Abuse Act section 63, which is the section that allows a separate court-trained advocate to come in and cross-examine the witness on behalf of the party who's a litigant in person. I talked about it on the podcast a couple of episodes ago because the president's guidance came out about it. For anyone who's interested, it's Section 63 of the Domestic Abuse Act. President's guidance, July 2022, deals with it in some significant detail. Judge goes on. Neither is there any mention of practice direction 3AA or part 3A of the FPR 2010. It is not the case that a judge has to say the words of the provisions to be taken to have considered what he should have. But faced as I am with no indication within the judgment that he has even considered those matters, albeit describing them differently, I cannot be confident that he has. In the particular factual circumstance of this case, I would go further and say that I'm satisfied that he has not. She then goes on to say, there was no ground rules hearing, either on the morning of the substantive hearing or before it. Had there been such a hearing, even as late as on the morning of the hearing itself, I have little doubt it would have uncovered in a matter of seconds the previous correspondence that had been with the court office about special measures, screens, waiting areas, so on. The judge also says, I've had the opportunity now to see a later statement prepared by the appellant setting out what she says was the adverse effect on her and therefore on the quality of her evidence before the judge on the day that the, of the hearing that's being appealed. That, of course, gives me an advantage of hindsight, which the judge did not have. But of relevance to me is that he did not need the hindsight of seeing the statement she gives us to the effect on her at the hearing because he had that which had been set out in a statement about the effect of her on an earlier hearing when she had participated without special measures at that. So, again, what the court is saying is, if someone is participating without special measures in a previous hearing, it doesn't necessarily mean they shouldn't have special measures moving forward. It is an ongoing obligation on the court to consider at all times whether someone requires those special measures. If they do not consider that, that will be liable to an appeal, potentially, obviously, depending on the facts and the judgment and the, so on. But that's essentially the thrust of the judgment. The judge says, therefore, on the appellant's case on ground one, there has been a procedural irregularity and I'm left sufficiently uneasy as to the effect of the procedural irregularity on the conclusions reached that I find the appeal must be allowed because the irregularity makes it unjust. Now, all of that very helpful. All of that should probably already be known to many of you who are familiar with the way the court works. And I would hope that that's something that, that's not entirely new to you. Now, ground two is a slightly more interesting ground, in my view, about where the family justice system is going, what direction we're moving in. Ground two is that the judge was wrong in refusing to determine the mother's allegations of domestic abuse and coercive controlling behaviour relevant to welfare decisions. The judge says the appellant has, from an early stage of the proceedings, raised within the body of her statements allegations of domestically abusive behaviour. As I've already indicated, those allegations include allegations of rape, physical and emotional violence and abuse, and a pattern of what is alleged to be coercive and controlling behaviour. Now, the judge, interestingly, and I'm, I'm interested to see your views on this, Malfica, about what you think of this particular paragraph, but the judge who's being appealed, so the first instance hearing, recorded by way of recital as to applications made by the appellant's counsel at the outset of the hearing for a fact-finding. Relevant to the ground of this appeal in the recital is which the learner judge records this. The first application was for the matter to be retracted to comply with practice direction 12J. I'm quoting from the original order that's now been appealed. 
namely seeking a fact-finding hearing. The court applied to practice direction 12J, including but not limited to paragraph 5 and 17. The court considered that any concerns of District Judge Todd at an earlier hearing must have been abated as a fact-finding hearing was not directed. Red flag number one. The matter was also raised in the mother's appeal, dated 30th of July, at ground two, and as such, the appeal was dismissed on the merits on the 11th of September by Her Honour Judge Forrester. Red flag two. The court considered that notwithstanding the allegations of domestic abuse, a fact-finding hearing is not necessary or proportionate because of the extent of the relevance of those allegations to the matters the court is determining today, and because of the content of the welfare reports of the children's guardian. The views of the children's guardian, as expressed in her analysis, are that the allegations are mainly historic and do not prevent safe arrangements for the child being made. Now, Mrs Justice Morgan puts it like this, in terms of what I consider to be the red flags in that particular quote from the order. I accept the submission made before me, however, that whether or not the judge in December was right or wrong in concluding that any concerns of an earlier judge at an earlier hearing must have been abated as a fact-finding was not directed is neither here nor there. As it turns out, I am satisfied that he was wrong to take the view, but it does not, as I see it, matter because there is continuing obligation to keep those matters under review by the trial judge himself. And he had also case-managed the case at earlier hearings. I note in particular that within the case management order of the 7th of July... His Honour Judge Dodd does not report that any consideration was given to PD12J or to ReHN. That case management hearing must have been directed to consider the hearing at the end of September that was later vacated. The absence of any reference to ReHN is a surprising omission in July 2021 because that decision, which had been widely heralded as a Court of Appeal consideration within conjoined cases as to whether or not Practice Direction 12J was fit for purpose and with intervention from interested bodies at the invitation of the Court of Appeal, the judgment had been handed down a little more than three months before the 7th of July hearing and had attracted significant attention, not least of which on this podcast. We have a whole episode about it. If you don't know what I'm talking about, we looked at the whole appeal throughout the whole episode. You can look at it there. It was middle of last year. Whilst again, that provides some sympathy for the situation the judge finds himself in. It does not relieve him, I regret to say, of the obligation to give consideration to practice direction 12J not just at the earliest opportunity, but to keep the matter under review throughout the court process and explicitly by practice direction 12J section 14 to make it clear in his order that he has done so. I am further troubled by the fact that by the time of the hearing of the case management on the 7th of July, the court had the benefit of a recently filed CAFCAS report in which the officer referred back to the allegations made and contained within an earlier section 7 report of coercive and controlling behaviour. The effect of the case management is there has not been a fact finding on the allegations of domestic abuse as alleged, and neither had there been a consideration of whether there should be such a hearing. So what's happened is this. There's been a number of hearings in this case about whether or not father should see this child. And at each stage, the mother has raised these allegations and said, this is what is concerning me about this contact application. And at no point has the court even considered whether or not it should have a fact finding. Not only that... But the judge at the hearing that's now being appealed has said, well, an earlier judge didn't order one, so I don't need to order one because I'm not at the earliest stage of proceedings. That, this case says, is an entirely wrong approach. It is an ongoing, as is the special measures, an ongoing obligation on the court to consider whether or not there should be a fact finding in the face of allegations of domestic abuse. The judge also says... I regret to say that even relying, as the judge did, on the advice of the children's guardian, that taken together with the earlier lack of application of those matters to which the court is required to have regard, I find myself with a real disquiet as to the approach taken to the application on behalf of the appellant at the outset of the hearing. Practice Direction 12J Section 17 directs the court that in determining whether a fact-finding is necessary, a court must consider, amongst other things, whether the nature and extent of the allegations would be relevant to the issues before the court if proved. I cannot see anywhere here the court's consideration of this or an explanation of any conclusions reached. The closest that it comes to is the reliance on the views of the children's guardian that the allegations are mainly historic and they do not prevent safe arrangements for the child being made, which, as I will come on to, I regard with some disquiet also. What the judge says about that, and I must admit, it's a common argument you see that I've run it myself, various other professionals have run it, it was run in the Court of Appeal in RHN, that yes, these allegations may or may not be true, but it's not relevant to safe arrangements for the child in the context of any application that might be being made. And even if everything that one party says is true about domestic abuse, the court is still in a position to be able to make safe arrangements for a child, regardless of what happened during the course of the relationship. It's quite a common argument that you see. And it was obviously raised in this case because the guardian says, well, you know, they're mostly historic and I don't think it stops contacts being able to progress. What Mrs. Justice Morgan says in response to that is this. I do not see the judge's analysis of how those feeds is the Guardian's view, into his own decision-making. Once again, a judge operating under pressure of time might be able to set out only in short form the analysis, but it is unfortunate that it is absent here. 
nor do I see the learned judge considering those matters to which his attention is drawn by section 37 below, including, for example, in every case where a finding or an admission of domestic abuse is made or where domestic abuse is otherwise established, the court should consider the conduct of both parents towards each other, towards the child and the impact of the same, including particularly the effect of domestic abuse on the child and arrangements for where the child is living or its effect on the child's relationship with the parents. Specifically in relation to coercive control and behaviour, I am left uneasy that the learned judge, allowing of course as I do for the fact he was pressed for time, does not always appear to have had the assistance he should have had from counsel, did not focus in a way that would have been appropriate on that which was being alleged by the appellant, and to consider it along the guidance emerging from RE-HN. And in particular, the following paragraphs where the Court of Appeal had itself considered the approach to coercive and controlling behaviour in the following way. And she recites paragraph 50 from RE-HN, which is Miss Barbara Mills, now Casey, on behalf of the second interveners, submitting that the overwhelming majority of domestic abuse is underpinned by coercive control. And this is the overarching issue that ought to be tried first by the court. We agree, and it follows that consideration of whether the evidence establishes an abusive pattern of coercive behaviour is likely to be the primary question in many cases where there is an allegation of domestic abuse. So taking all of this together and noting that the only justification the judge gives for not allowing a fact finding is the guardian's recommendations and the allegations, viewing the allegations as historic, the judge takes the view that the second ground of appeal would also succeed. And she says, I note I've been reliant on the recital included in the order made at the end of the hearing because the consideration of the application for a wider fact finding hearing made on the morning does not feature in the learned judge's judgment. And that is regrettable, even given the want of time. So she says, that's all I have to go on and it's not good enough. So there's a very clear warning in this case as well, that if you are going to make a certain decision about fact findings one way or another, the analysis has to be done properly. It doesn't have to be done chapter and verse, but there has to be proper reference to practice direction 12J, to RE-HN, to the Domestic Abuse Act, to practice direction 3A, and so on, to make sure that that decision is safe. That sounds like a lot, very long-winded and complicated black letter law way of saying all of the principles that you know to follow must be followed by the court in a way that's proper. If they're not followed, then the court will and should appeal that decision on the basis that it's not fair to the person who's alleging abuse. So Ms. Justice Morgan goes on to say, because of the hearing, I have limited information as to the welfare aspects. And because I've seen that the CAFCAS officer investigating and appointing as the guardian has been so firmly supportive of contact, I had hesitated to stay the arrangements now in place. So what happened was at the first instance hearing, there was no fact finding, there was a final hearing, contact order was made between the father and the child. We're now eight months, nine months down the line from that hearing, because it was in December last year. And the judge is saying, well, you know, normally things will have moved on by then anyway, because the child's been having contact. But she notes that there's been such little compliance with that order, presumably because the child doesn't feel safe or doesn't want to go or there's been concerns, that she does stay the arrangements ordered by the prevailing order before and will, for the time being, revert to the arrangements under the previously operating order. But whether the stay should continue and what should happen in relation to a fact finding will be added to the list of matters for another court to consider. So it's put down for a rehearing in relation to those two issues, one special measures and two, whether or not there should be a fact finding. So if you want a comprehensive authority on the interplay between Practice Direction 12J, Section 63 of the Domestic Abuse Act, Practice Direction 3AA and Part 3A of the FPR, look no further than the case of CM and IP. What do you think? Yeah, I think listening to you, it's not a case I'd read before. What this case has really reiterated to me is the importance of knowing your law in this area. And the law is accumulating very quickly in this particular area of law, the case law. Domestic Abuse Act has just come in, but also really know PD12J inside out. I think a lot of lawyers know PD12J in sweeping terms, but they haven't read all 40 paragraphs. And there is so much to PD12J. There are so many tools available to lawyers so that they can best represent their clients so that they can hold the court accountable. It's part of the reason why I wrote my book on it, Practical Guide to PD12J. I'll put the link in the show notes. But, you know, for example, read paragraph 10 of PD12J, and you'll have a tool in your arsenal about the court having to make its own inquiries about special measures for vulnerable witnesses. Read paragraph 18 of PD12J, where it makes very clear that the court should be recording its reasons for deciding not to hold a fact-find hearing. It's not until you actually look at the black letter law and do the work that you're supposed to do, do your homework, that you can best represent your client. So there are no shortcuts in this area of law. I've also seen there are a couple of cases which have reiterated the importance of ground rules and special measures being complied with. This is one of them. Another one is one that Maddie and I have talked about, which is called a local authority and a mother and others, where Mr. Justice Williams recently allowed an application to reopen findings from back in 2018, so three and a half years ago, because of significant non-compliance with ground rules at the fact-finding hearing. 
So this is really, really important stuff and it can have enormous implications for your cases. So it's if there's only one thing you take away from this episode of the podcast, it's ground rules. Think about them, raise them, comply with them. Yeah, and I would highlight as well, it's not just domestic abuse, often in particularly in care cases, but in private children as well and international someone can be vulnerable by virtue of their education their background their language their cognitive functioning medical issues disabilities anything that means that they may not be able to process or understand or participate in the court in the way that sort of your, your average man on the clap omnibus would be able to so any hint or concern about your client being in any way vulnerable or having difficulties please please raise it with the solicitor, please ask for the appropriate assessments. Please make sure you raise it with the judge because that is what we, at the very least, owe our clients. That's what we're here to do, to ensure they've got a fair hearing. And if we can't do that, then let's call the whole thing off. So really would stress what Mavica said. If you take one thing away from that rambling from me, ground rules are important. Vulnerability matters and we've got to get it sorted. This is a difficult system anyway, but if you're vulnerable, it's 10 times harder. And certainly, please, if you have any worries about things like capacity or cognitive functioning raise the appropriate questions to the appropriate people and get the assessments done as soon as possible and don't don't take things lying down I think both Maddie and I have been in the position where despite our solicitors having done everything right contacting the court to ask for special measures in place making the right applications asking for separate entrances separate waiting room screens in the courtroom we then turn up to court and none of those things have been done. None of those things have been made available. And it's so distressing for our clients. So don't let those things go. Raise them with the judge. Raise the impact that that's had on your client and how that could potentially impact upon their ability to give their best evidence because it's happening far too often. What have you got for us this week? Judgment I picked is also from the same part of the jurisdiction. It's by His Honour Judge Baker, who's the DFJ for Cumbria. And it's a case called Re-C. And it was handed down at the end of September. Now, the key figures in this case are obviously the child who's given the name Christina, not her real name, by the judge. The mother is also called Abby by the judge. The father is called John. So I'm going to use those names in the judgment. And the case had been listed before His Honour Judge Baker for a fact find to determine if the father, John, had sexually abused his daughter, Christina. Now, the background is that the parents have had a kind of on-off relationship. Christina was born out of that. There were a few attempts to rekindle it. Didn't really work out. It fizzled out. But there was no bad blood between them. And Christina had enjoyed a really positive relationship with her father, even after the parents' separation, which is great. John continued to spend time with Christina up until October 2021, including overnight. And the mother, during the course of this hearing, accepted that, save for the allegation of sexually inappropriate behaviour, which I will get to, John was a good father to Christina. So what happened? On the 6th of October last year, everything changes. John picks Christina up from school. They spend the evening together. Abby then collects Christina at 9pm and they walk back home. And during that walk, Christina makes a comment to Abby to the effect of daddy touched me. And she points to her chest. She holds her hands over her genitals. Unsurprisingly, Abby's completely freaked out by this. In a weird twist, as they're walking, they happen to bump into two police officers, one of whom then turns on their body-worn camera. And the court has the benefit of whatever was exchanged during that conversation. The police then visit Christina the following morning, speak to her. Off the back of that conversation, they decide that she should be ABE interviewed. That doesn't happen until the 21st of December, 2021, so over two months later. And in the meantime, her contact has been restricted with John. The judge quite rightly notes that that is way too long for a four-year-old to be ABE interviewed about allegations of this sort, For obvious reasons, as time lapses, memory inevitably becomes more slippery, especially for a child of that age. In the event, during the ABE interview, Christina basically only said good things about her father and does not repeat these allegations that her mother says she said. The police then decide to take no further action after interviewing John. Social services then becomes involved. And despite the police having taken no further action, They indicate that there should be a risk assessment and pending that risk assessment being completed, John should have no contact whatsoever with Christina. 
Now, Abby, the mother, would obviously have taken that seriously, and the judge is not critical of her for doing so. We know, Maddie and I know, that it's not unheard of for social services recommendations not to be adhered to. And then for the parent who has the care of the child to be deemed as failing to protect because they didn't suspend contact where there are allegations of this nature. Having said a risk assessment should be completed, social services then doesn't say who's going to do that, when they're going to do it by, and it never happens. So we're in this position where the police have taken no further action. Social services have stuck their oar in and said, well, there needs to be a risk assessment or no contact. That's all fine and good, but they don't seem to be doing that risk assessment themselves, nor is there any sense of urgency about completing that risk assessment. In the meantime, this child and father are in limbo, not seeing each other. Ultimately, John then issues proceedings in February of this year to try and have a relationship with his daughter because that risk assessment is clearly not being completed. And as part of the proceedings, a fact-finding hearing was listed. The judge heard from the parents and from Dr. Knight, who is the paediatrician who examined Christina back during the course of the police investigation in October 2021. His examination had revealed some reddening of her genitals, which was consistent with something potentially having happened. But in his evidence, he accepted that there were other potential explanations for this reddening. Swabs were also taken from Christina, but they weren't tested because the police officer thought there's not much point because John is Christina's father. So he would be doing things like toileting her. So his DNA would inevitably be present on her intimate areas. That's fair enough. But the swabs also were not tested for STDs or infections or other potential causes of the redness, which isn't terribly helpful. Dr. Knight also confirmed that Christina's hymen was intact, although that could still be the case post-penetration, but he confirmed that while an intact hymen does not confirm penetration hasn't taken place, it makes it less likely to have happened. So that's the state of the medical evidence, which doesn't tell us an awful lot. Turning to the parents' evidence, it then turned out during Abby's cross-examination, the mother's cross-examination, that there had been some issues with Christina's behavior before and some potential explanations for these issues surfaced during her evidence. So apparently on one occasion, Christina at the age of two said, show me your dick. And there had also been times that she'd stuck her hands down her nappy and Abby had been concerned about this. She talked to John about it, but it became clear during evidence that Abby's boyfriend who the judge calls Ben at the time, the father of her other daughter, who had been living with her and Christina could have been a candidate for the behaviors that were being displayed by Christina. So interestingly, while the judge doesn't hear from Ben directly, he says, I have no doubt whatsoever that Abby believed what she had told me. And what Abby told him is that Ben could be loud, aggressive, threatening, and on a number of occasions, she felt he had forced her to have sex. She also told the judge he wouldn't think twice about swearing in front of children. As it happened, Ben ended up being sent to prison and he wasn't having contact with his daughter for something totally different, supply of cocaine. So what about the other evidence? That's the, that's mother's evidence, that's the medical evidence. What about the things that Christina had said herself? Well, the judge was very critical of the body-worn camera footage exchange and says, well, this is an example of how not to have a discussion with a child about an allegation of sexual abuse because almost everything that is said in front of her during the course of that brief conversation is suggestive leading or in some other way in breach of the guidance given with respect to speaking to children about such allegations. Then there's a conversation that Christina has the following day with the police. She tells the police that her dad hit her, that he touched her down there, that he put shampoo in her eyes in the park the previous day, that he touched her with his hands, that she was wearing her unicorn outfit, that he touched her underneath her trousers on the slide in the park, and then he let her fall and a unicorn caught her with magic powers. That is the only direct account from Christina, from her mouth, about the father touching her. And as it turns out, obviously lots of it's inaccurate because she didn't go to the park, she wasn't wearing her unicorn outfit, and I think as the judge rather wryly observes, it's safe to say a unicorn did not stop her falling with its magic powers. Christina also speaks to a social worker, raises zero concerns with that social worker, she has an ABE interview, and as I said before, she says nothing negative about her father. The police, as I said, took no further action, 
But the local authority then make a referral to an organisation called Safety Net UK, and they support the recovery of those affected by rape, exploitation, sexual and domestic abuse. The judge notes that by implication, a referral suggests that someone has suffered one of those things, when, of course, it has not been established that in this case, Christina has suffered any of those things. But Safety Net UK provide a letter in March 2022, which effectively diagnoses Christina with PTSD symptoms, which they suggest is consistent with her having been sexually abused ultimately by the father. And the judge is very critical of them and says the conclusions that are set out in the letter, which are not expressed at all equivocally, are to say the least highly speculative and untenable in the context of one phone call. So the judge hears the evidence at the fact-finding hearing. After the evidence concludes, the mother then files a position statement where she says, while she acted appropriately in response to what Christina said to her, ultimately, she accepts that Christina has not been touched by her father in a sexually inappropriate manner. So she's reflected on the evidence she's heard so far. She's reflected on the medical evidence. She's reflected on the possibility of Christina's behavior having been a result of observing domestic abuse and criminal activity by her former partner. She accepts that her first account to the police may not have given Christina her authentic voice. So full credit to the mother in having reflected on the position and no longer pursuing findings against the father. The judge is not critical of her at all and says that her view accords with his. So where does this get us? This is where the interesting part of the judgment is. And the judge makes some very sweeping observations about the case, which I'll set out in full because I think they're really, really well articulated. And he says, it seems to me only right that I put in the public domain my concerns in respect to this case and the process in general. Reading the police evidence, the social services notes, and for example, the letter from Safety Net, it seems to me that everyone failed to remind themselves of one important fact, an important fact that should have been in the balance when considering the risk presented by John. That fact is that John was Christina's father. Parents touch their children. In particular, parents touch young children. Parents touch their children in intimate areas, be that their genitals or their anal area. They do so of necessity, and they are often entirely justified in doing so. They touch their children when they toilet them, when they clean them, and when they bathe or shower them. They may do so to deal with medical issues or complaints of difficulty or soreness. They may do so accidentally when dressing them or playing. An assertion by a child, certainly a child of four, as in this case, or indeed younger, that a parent has touched them down there or in their special area or in an intimate area on one occasion does not automatically equate to sexual abuse. But then the judge goes even further. And what he says is, I pose this question. If the roles were reversed, if John had collected Christina for contact on 6th of October and walked from her mother's, picked her up at nine o'clock, had three pints having just been to the bingo, and Christina said to him, mummy touched me, and indicated her chest and her stomach and her genital area, and had John walked around the corner to a police officer and relayed that accurately or inaccurately in detail or vaguely to a police officer, how likely is it that Abby would not have had any contact with her daughter for almost a year as a consequence of what was set in place as a result of that allegation? being made. I find it almost impossible to conclude that the answer to that question would be anything other than unlikely. And then the judge says, I regret as the recently appointed designated family judge for this area that it has taken almost an entire year for the family justice procedure to be concluded such that John can walk from this court rightly without a stain on his up until now unblemished character. I regret that only a year later the injustice of this case whereby Christine and John have foregone a year of their lives together, can now be put right. It stems from the fact that no professional during this process appears to have taken a step back and thought to themselves, this is a case about a father and the suggestion that a father has sexually abused his daughter. No one seems to have asked the question, what is the actual evidence for sexual abuse having taken place? Had that question been properly and appropriately analysed at a much earlier stage, a more sober view and advice could have been given. I completely agree with what that judge has said. and something we've talked about on the podcast before, which is that evidence 
sometimes falls to the side when professionals have knee-jerk reactions to very serious allegations of this nature. We talked about it on the last episode with your case, Maddie, the FGMPO case. We've talked about it before and about professionals properly interrogating the evidence rather than making recommendations on very flimsy bases with profound consequences for children and for families. And I think it's entirely right for the judge to be critical of professionals in that respect. It is not acceptable that the police took over two months to ABE interview this child. It is not acceptable that Safety Net had a telephone conversation with the mother and then wrote a bonkers letter to the court. It's not acceptable for a local authority to make a recommendation with very serious implications about this child not having contact until there's a risk assessment and then not doing anything to actually complete that risk assessment. And the criticisms he makes of the system are completely, completely valid. Professionals, in our experience, and I'm sure you'll agree with me, make decisions and recommendations which then appear to just snowball out of control in many cases to the detriment of the children and the families at the heart of that decision-making process. I'm actually so glad you covered this case because I don't think it's something that I've been able to rant about properly on the podcast yet, but I know it will be something that we've touched on before. But the pervasive and very concerning manner in which professionals and often the family justice system approaches allegations made by children of any kind has been the subject of review since 1987 after the Cleveland inquiry, which was the Cleveland report that set out that, you know, we're not to call them disclosures anymore. They're called allegations and we're to abide by ABE guidelines and the lilac book and all of that. Those recommendations remain good practice, best practice and law in this country. And they are flouted all the time. If you, I don't know if you've read re you probably have the, the McDonald case about the application of those recommendations. It's called ASNTH as well, false allegations of, of abuse. It is astounding, really, that people still ignore logical conclusions of lack of evidence or logical conclusions of what children have or haven't said in the context of much broader family relationships and jump to what could be considered one of the worst conclusions. The case law has gone through in some detail in, in that case I just mentioned, AS and TH, um, and I'll put the link in the in the show notes for anyone who's interested, but it's pervasive. And this judgment, I think, is, well, A, I think the way it's written is really sensible, using names, using really plain language. I would, I've read it, and I, w- I would encourage anyone to read it. The way it's, it's, the way it's written is really digestible. It's literally written as, as you sort of set it out in your summary, really digestible language. But secondly... Of course, parents touch their children. Of course, children say parents touch them. Children say all sorts of things to everyone all the time, especially children of separated parents because they know that their parents don't may not speak to each other or may not communicate in a way. And children are smart and they like to get their own way and they want to be told that they're clever and whatever. Like all of that kind of logical stuff. And obviously I say that in the context that both Malvika and I have dedicated our lives to child protection. I Obviously, all I want is for children to be safe. That's the purpose of my job. But we also have to be realistic and we have to look at parental relationships in context. And I do find these kind of cases sometimes really difficult to swallow and really difficult to defend in the face of what I generally tend to view as a, as a good system doing well in the in the face of very, you know, enormous challenges. But yeah, it's frustrating. And I think you still find professionals calling allegations disclosures. I'm sure you see it. I see it all the time. You still see doctors, particularly professionals of, of kind, lawyers, judges, jumping to conclusions about things when there's actually no conclusive evidence that points either way. And allegations made by children being treated very differently to allegations made by adults, as they should be, but not in a way that really is cohesive with any kind of logical guideline. And that does concern me. So I'm really glad you covered this case, actually. I think it's a really digestible and good way of getting that message across. The other point is, of course, the point he makes at the end about would it have happened if it was the other way around in terms of gender? Now, I don't know whether it's gender he's talking about or whether he's talking about primary carer versus, you know, not primary carer. I don't know is the answer. My concern, well, I think there's two arguments, isn't it? There's two things that can be true. The first is it is true that the majority of sexual abuse of children is committed by men. That is a fact. It's also true that because of that, some men are seen in the system or treated by professionals as being inherently higher risk than women. That may be because statistically they are or it may be because of unknown or unconscious views about who and what kind of person commits child sexual abuse. Now, we all know that women can and are able to. We all know that women can and are able to kill and harm and abuse their children, as are men. But it is majority 
it is men. So it, it's very difficult to balance those two conclusions. I do think there is a, perhaps a gendered aspect. I've not thought about it beyond the comments I just made, so I'd, I wouldn't want to go into it and start a dissertation on it. But I do think it's an interesting point, and I think there is there is an expectation, particularly in care cases involving abuse of children, that perhaps, well, factually, statistically, it's more likely to be a man. Does that mean it is the man? No. But does that mean that professionals have certain ways of working with men in cases? Maybe. I don't know. I don't work within those systems. But it's an interesting point. What did you get from it? Yeah, I I don't know if I necessarily agree that if the shoe were on the other foot, if the allegations had been made against Abby, that the same thing would not have happened. And I don't know if he's suggesting that there's something gendered to that approach that fathers are treated differently to mothers. And I think I'd want to think a lot more carefully about that before I make any more sweeping observations. But I don't I don't necessarily agree that if the father had made the same allegations about the mother, that the same outcome wouldn't have happened or that same snowball effect wouldn't have happened. For me, I think it's more about professional knee jerk reactions to serious allegations across the board and getting carried away rather than necessarily whether the allegations are against the mother or the father. But I think it's an interesting point. I'd be interested to hear what other people think about it. I mean, maybe I'm naive, and maybe that is something that's very explicitly gendered that I'm maybe not as conscious of. But I'd be interested to, to hear what our listeners have to say about it. I think the other the other area you see it is in private children where both parents make allegations of similar type against each other. And I've seen that happen. I think there's been reported cases about it where if mother comes to court or father comes to court and says xyz has happened to me in the course of the relationship and i'm concerned about the impact of that on the child and the other parent comes to court and says well xyz happened to me in the relationship actually and it was the other person who was the perpetrator and i'm concerned about the impact of that on the child if the threshold for intervention by the local authority is not reached one of those parents is probably going to care for that child and that automatically means that one of those parents is going to get an opportunity to test their ability to care in placement by virtue of caring for the child so the impact of those allegations, the impact on the welfare of the child becomes lessened by virtue of the time that they spend where the child is safe with them. Now, if the child, obviously, if something happens and the child becomes unsafe, those allegations become very significant. If after months and months, the child's care is fine, according to professionals, and there's no issues raised, the impact of those allegations is lessened. Now, the difficulty with that is, I think, statistically, it is more common for women to retain children after relationship breakdown. Now, that doesn't mean anything in the context of who's more capable and who's more likely to be committing or perpetrating abuse, whatever. But it means that the person who is caring for the child, be it the mother or the father, has a better opportunity to indicate their ability to care for the child than someone who's not able or not going to see them, which automatically means one parent is at an advantage. Now, a lot of people view that as a gendered advantage. I don't. I view it as a primary carer advantage, which is why it's very important on breakdown that if arrangements for the child can't be secured very quickly and parents have real safeguarding concerns, coming to court quickly is, is important because you don't want to set another sort of status quo with the primary care because, as I say, the impact of those allegations just become lessened. So it's a really tricky point because if the local authority don't intervene, and often they don't and they shouldn't, obviously, unless they need to, someone's got to care for the child. And if that someone's doing well, then the likelihood of a court taking up a lot of court time, working out whether or not someone is going to be a good care of the child is much more unlikely because they're already doing it and doing it to a satisfactory standard. And that, I think, causes problems in the system with an idea of gender politics. I don't think it is, actually. I think it's just logical in terms of the lack of threshold for intervention by a third party. But it's an interesting point. All right, Maddie, what's your book, TV, podcast recommendation? Oh my God, I've been sweating to talk about this for weeks. It's the Hoax podcast. I've already tweeted about it. I'm sure you've listened to it. Everyone I know has listened to it. I was talking about it at the Association of Lawyers for Children conference all weekend that I've just come back from. It was so good. Now, I've done some research because I've been, as I say, sweating to talk to you about this. I've not talked to you about it for this reason because I wanted to talk to you about it on the show. But it is a case of re-P and Q from 2015. Now, I don't know if you read this before you became a barrister. I did. And I remember thinking, this sounds so completely off the wall, so completely unbelievable, incredulous, that I'm sure this is just an absolute once off. This is an absolute, I couldn't imagine anything like this happening. Rereading it again as a five year in Barrister was just a totally different experience because I really could see the seeds and the problems that we see all the time 
in our cases, really coming to their, growing to their fruition in a really serious way in this case. Now, for those of you who haven't listened to it or don't know, it is about what is called the West Hampstead Satanic Sex Cult case, which is essentially where a mother and her partner emotionally manipulated and, and essentially psychologically abused two very young primary school age children into making very significant, very graphic, very horrifying allegations of satanic ritual abuse, the death of babies, including drinking blood, including sexual abuse, against about 100 members of their community in Hampstead in North London, which is, for anyone who's from London, is a very, very posh, nice area where I would love to live one day. And they make allegations against their primary school teachers, against vicars at the local church, against social workers, against police officers, all kinds of people in the community. No one is left untouched by it. Now, that happens sometimes. That may have happened before in the past. Now, the unique thing about this case is that the mother sacked a number of her solicitors and barristers, unsurprisingly, because she insisted these allegations were true. Now, they've been found not to be true by the court, so I'm allowed to say they're not true. And she was representing herself for the majority of the care proceedings when the children were taken into care after having made allegations in AB interviews of abuse. The mother defied a court order multiple times and posted the AB interviews of the children on the internet, including their faces, their voices, everything, identifying features, addresses, names, all sorts of things, all sorts of extremely personal, sensitive and damaging information about individuals who had nothing to do with anything. They were just named in this in this particular set of allegations. That led to a worldwide conspiracy theory, similar to something like Pizzagate or QAnon, about there being a satanic sex cult in Hampstead in North London that ultimately culminated in people flying over from America to try and confront people in Hampstead about sexually abusing children. There were protests outside a primary school, there were protests outside churches, parents were terrified, they had to move their their children who were classmates of, of these particular children away from the area. It is terrifying and shocking and, and the absolute you know worst case scenario when it comes to the leaking of family court information. Now, please listen to it. It's just so good. It's done by the same person who did Sweet Bobby, which we also talked about on this podcast, which we loved as well. Alexi Mostros from Tortoise Media. It's called Hoaxed. Please look it up, listen to it, let me know what you think. Please also, I've um, tweeted on my Twitter page, Maddie underscore underscore Whelan too, about the original judgment by Mrs. Justice Paulfley, who was the judge in P&Q in 2015, the original case. It's one of the most sensitive and compassionate judgments I've ever read because of the nature of of the huge and wide-ranging emotional damage done to these children to the point where she doesn't think that they'll ever be able to live normal lives because of what happened to them and what information was shared about them. But yeah, please don't Google their names. I don't know their names and I don't want to find out, but you could find out if you look. Please don't do that. And Alexi Mostros makes it clear in the podcast he doesn't want people to do that. This is not about making their stories worse. It's about highlighting the extent to which some parents unfortunately do go for various reasons that I'll leave you to conclude. But yeah, please listen to it. Have you listened to it yet? I've never even heard of this case, Maddie. So I don't know where I've been. I must have been under a rock. I haven't heard of this podcast. I haven't heard of that case by Mrs. Justice Paulfley. So I've got some catching up to do. And it also ties in quite well with my case. Yeah, it really does. Please, please listen to it. I know now that you don't read my tweets. How mean. But yeah, I tweeted about it and lots of people have tweeted me telling me that they enjoyed it. It does directly relate to family law. It's just super interesting. And I, yeah, I just, I thought it was so well done. So please do listen to it and tell me what you think. Maybe we can touch back next week and see what you thought about it. Sounds good. Now, my recommendation, I was a bit conflicted about whether I should mention it because it could be seen as a little bit frivolous or a little bit silly. It's a kind of warm-hearted K-drama, but my co-scholar, Alex, I've talked his ear off about this and how much fun I find each episode and he persuaded me that I should recommend it. So people think that it's a stupid recommendation where you can blame Alex. It's called Extraordinary Attorney Woo. It's on Netflix. It was trending when I came to India on Netflix, so I gave it a go. I've decided to suggest it because I found it incredibly watchful and entertaining and warm and funny. I can't, however, testify to the accuracy of its legal content because it's a K-drama. Funnily enough, I know nothing about South Korean law. For any South Korean lawyers out there who want to comment on its legal accuracy, slide into our DMs. But the other reason I was a bit wary is because the show centers around an autistic lawyer 
who works in a firm and encounters a number of difficulties by virtue of her autism. And she is depicted as a genius with an incredible memory. And that is slightly making me itch because I'm a bit tired of that narrative of the genius autistic main character, Allah the Good Doctor, which is also played by a neurotypical actor. So Extraordinary Attorney Wu and the main character in The Good Doctor are played by neurotypical actors. So if any autistic people or autism advocates have any views on this, let me know. I'd be really interested to hear what you think. But there were some elements of the show that really engaged with the issue of autism really well, which is why I'm recommending it, like Wu Young Wu's hypersensitivity, sensory issues, echolalia, and so on. There's one episode which features another autistic character who's on a very different part of the spectrum to her, which reiterates that autism manifests very differently and the spectrum is absolutely enormous. And the show doesn't shy away from implicit and explicit ableism that autistic people encounter not least Young Wu's difficulties getting a job in the first place despite graduating top of her class at law school. So I think that the show might give other people the same conflicted feelings that I had, but I'm sure that I will also be interested to hear what our listeners think about it. So I've recommended it because it is a legal drama, can't tell you if it's accurate, but I think it will make you think and I think it will make you have an opinion which I would be very interested to hear bit of a stretch in terms of a legal recommendation but I think I can just about make it work for our purposes. Is it in Korean? So it's about a Korean person in Korea? Yeah it's in Korean. Love that, love that. I mean if people are watching Suits and Becoming Lawyers then they should also be watching K-dramas in my view. I have one more which is I'm just going to mention briefly for anyone who might be particularly interested but I discovered it this morning. It's a podcast by The Guardian Australia which is called Ben Robert Smith and the Media or V the media, I say and, but it's V the media, which is about a Australian soldier who was awarded the Victoria Cross, which is a very, very significant high level military achievement for um, a very brave piece of military action in Afghanistan in 2012, who has now been essentially in the Australian press called a war criminal for unlawful killings of civilians and killing prisoners of war. And has launched a huge, huge defamation suit against four newspapers in Australia for calling him a war criminal when he says he's a war hero. Really, really interesting in terms of defamation law, actually, and in terms of the courtroom and the way in which Australia... Now, Australian legal system is really similar to the UK, obviously not in terms of substance, but in terms of the advocates and the barrister and solicitor divide and so on. So if anyone wants a little bit of military interest about that and also about international law in relation to war crimes, the Geneva Convention and so on. It covers it really well. And it's Guardian, so it's done It's done really well and well-researched. Super, super interesting. So I would check that out as well. And all of those will be in the notes. Now, what is your... Have you managed to find a Tweet of the Week for us this week? Or has Twitter continued to let you down? And no one's going to be on Twitter soon, are they? So maybe we need to change the name of the section. I do have a Tweet of the Week, but it's from a few weeks ago because I haven't really been on Twitter not reading anyone's tweets, Maddie, not, not just your tweets. And it's by Laura Paisley at Paisley Laura. And it says, first tweet in over three years. Something hit me yesterday in court whilst having a really lovely chat with my client as the human being, father, grandfather, employee and taxpayer that he is. In 10 years time, I might not remember him. Chances are he will remember me. I hope he remembers me for doing my job. More than that, I hope he remembers me for being kind. As I look at another weekend of unpaid work, I hope that the new cabinet works with us, not against us. I care about this job and my clients. Please don't make me give this up. Which I thought was really beautifully articulated and so timely as we are transitioning into a new government. Maddie and I have talked before about why we do this work. We don't do this work for any particular plaudits. We certainly don't do it for any congratulation or praise or applause because it's not a popular area of work and family lawyers have a particular rep but we do the work because we care and I guarantee that we go home and think far too much about every single case and every single client that we have our cases keep us up at night and we try our very best to do whatever we can but it is a job that wears on us and it's a job that is becoming increasingly difficult to do for people in exclusively legal aid work or members of the criminal bar and it's so important that we keep banging the drum, particularly for our colleagues at the criminal bar. I completely agree. And 
we as an institution at Professionally Embarrassing stand together with our criminal brothers and sisters in their struggle to be properly recognised, remunerated and praised for the very, very difficult and important work they do. And that applies just as equally to our family colleagues as well. I think that's a really lovely sentiment, actually, that's expressed in that tweet, that we probably do play a more important role in the lives of our clients than they play in ours by virtue of quantity. (laughs) But I think it's nice to remember that you can just be remembered for being competent and kind. I think that's probably enough. And, you know, that's that will, will always be what people remember you for. I'm going to finish the episode with something that I think you'll appreciate, Malvika, which is that my tweet of the week is from Alex Chandler Casey at Family Brief, who tweeted the most adorable picture of a kitten I've ever seen in my entire life on his shoulder with the caption, my junior has an application to make. And it made me laugh. And I thought the kitten was really, really sweet. So I just thought everyone might want to go and look at that picture um, if they're struggling with it at the end of a long week. Love a cat picture. I don't miss much about being home. I thought I'd be a lot more homesick than this, but the one thing I do miss is my cat. Thankfully, there are five cats in this particular B&B, including three kittens. So I am thriving in Delhi, but I will look up that kitten picture. Thank you so much for joining us, guys. And we're sorry again for the delay. Next time you hear from us, will be post Family Law Awards, which I'm going to a week today um, and regardless of outcome we just want to say thank you so much for listening to us we really do enjoy doing this and we really work hard at it so any comments or suggestions or feedback or interaction that you have for us about the series please let us know because we're always very happy to hear it um, and thank you to anyone who did vote for us next week regardless of the outcome we're just really happy to be nominated so thank you thanks a lot